The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We are in chapter 5, which is the closing section of this epistle. And this is where the apostle gives the church practical advice on how Christians should live in this world as we wait on Christ to return. This is the way that we survive troubled times. And the way that we survive is being a close-knit group with internal relationships of love and respect. Uh, The church must live and work together. We depend upon each other. When we receive Christ, we are born into the, to the family of God. And then God calls us to unite with his church. And, and the church is the means of doing the Lord's work in this world and accomplishing his purposes. We are in this world for Christ. And I'm glad that we uh, sang that song, Uh, Our life, our all belongs to him and we are here to preach the gospel so that his chosen people will hear the word and they will come to Christ in repentant faith. The Bible teaches, Paul says, the church is the body of Christ, that it is a living organism. It's a, it's a place, an organism that has a plan that will en- enable it to survive the constant attacks of, of this world that is hostile against it. So always remember, we must work together. In Galatians, Paul wrote that we are not to bite and devour one another. He said we must bear one another's burdens. He said we are to regard others better than ourselves. And the church can't survive if we don't care for one another and if we are not forbearing with each other. The church can't maintain its focus if there's chaos in the ranks. In fact, you'll note that Paul said that when he was with the church that he was never disorderly. He said he was disciplined in his approach to ministry, that he was very straightforward without deceit. And so that's the way the church is to operate. It is to be orderly. It's to be organized, never disrupted. And those of you that um, are here when we have a business meeting in the church, this is the way that I always pray. I always pray that our business would be done decently and in order, that we would conduct ourselves as God would have us to. Because here's one thing we, mu- we must learn in the church. We are not adversaries. We, we are in the fa- same family. We are friends here. Uh, we are not adversaries. And this is what Paul is striving for in this section of the letter, uh, that is to put in order the relationships and to see how that we can get along without disrupting the focus of the church, which is the gospel of Christ. So as we read this section of scripture on to the end of the chapter, this section is very practical. We don't find anything mystical in it. There's nothing earth shattering here, and there won't be in my comments today. There is no extraordinary power that's indicated in this passage that will just blow the socks off the world. And so you'll leave this place charged up and ready to, as they say, charge hell with a water pistol. Uh, You won't find that here. And neither will you find anything that is unreasonable in what the apostle asks us to do. There's nothing here that's outside the common expectations for all of God's people. So this, what we see here, should be ordinary Christian life. And so with his advice, this advice, you should feel at home in the church. 
It helps you to esteem the value of the work and the part you have in it. And it happens by the way that we interact with each other. We are the body of Christ, a functioning body. My relationship to you and yours to me is just like the human body operates. It's like arms are to hands and legs are to feet. We are part of the same body, so we can't act contrary to each other. So we work together for the good functioning of the church. So I'm trying to tell you that this is church. This is what it is to be a church. This is ordinary church. And so in the passage, we get behind the scenes and examine the nuts and bolts of what makes us tick. This is what it takes to run smoothly and enjoyably on the inside while the world on the outside is against us. So I just encourage you to sit back and listen today. We're not going to be in hypertensive mode. Said so you're not going to be jumping up and down in the seats. I don't think I'm going to raise anybody's blood pressure too much. And these next few weeks in these scriptures to reach the end of this letter, I think is what we could call spiritual maintenance for God's people. Now we notice in the text that Paul began with leadership. God appoints leaders and there must be proper respect for leaders in order for the church to function well. Our text is verses 12 and 13 where Paul writes, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now this was the starting point in the first part of our message from last week. Number one, that... The church is to respect the labors of leadership. Leaders are placed over the church by the appointment and the direction of the Holy Spirit. We learn that someone must be in charge, someone must guide the effort because there is no organization, there, there is no company, there isn't a business, there is no enterprise that, that doesn't work well unless there are qualified people that are in charge, that are leaders. And so when the Lord began his church, he started with leadership. He started appointing 12 men that he chose to be the foundation. In Ephesians, the consummate church epistle, Paul wrote that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So the apostles were the first leaders. They were set in the church first. They were the original pastors of the Jerusalem church. And then in Acts, we read that after Pentecost, the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In the sixth chapter, uh, they directed, the apostles directed the church to choose deacons as leaders to help in the daily administration. And thus we have two categories of leadership in the church, that is the pastor and the deacons. And God's work is always done this way. Going back into the Old Testament times, this is what God would do. He, he would raise leaders and they would guide the people spiritually and they would intercede for the people with God and they would keep everything flowing decently and organized and orderly. The leadership has the ear of God because they're led by the Holy Spirit. Now the last time that we talked about this, we looked at it from the viewpoint of the leader. What is the leader to do for the people? What is his relationship to the people? How do we see it from the leader's side? And we learn that leaders, the pastor especially, is to instruct. The primary function of the pastor is to indoctrinate the church in the Word of God. 
The Bible is the instruction manual for Christians, and so the pastor is to know the Bible and be able to explain the doctrines of the faith. And he does this so you can be enriched and that you can grow in your sanctification. Now, as I mentioned in our forum class just a little bit earlier, the pastor has to have this this broad knowledge of many different aspects of the Word of God so that you can come to me and I can give you advice or I can give you help on what scriptures mean. Because Ephesians 5.26, the Bible says this is the way that God sanctifies the church. He sanctifies it through the washing of the water by the word. And if you want to know why do we read so much scripture at Berean? Why do we take the Bible verse by verse? Why is there an opening exercise with reading? Why is there another exercise with reading? Why is the Bible always prominent? This is the answer. The Word of God is the way that we are sanctified. The Word of God is the way that we come to know Jesus Christ. So that's the primary function of the pastor. Pastors do what I do now. That is, explain the Scriptures. And as you know, I'm convinced that expositing the Word of God verse by verse is the best. Because that helps you to understand how to apply the Word to your life and your good spiritual health. Now sometimes as we preach the Word... The word is like vegetables. I mean, nobody gets real excited about green beans, do you? Sometimes when you, well, some do. Uh, I, my granddaughter Jolie's over there. I said the other night, I said, well, do you want some green beans? Well, she'll bypass the, she'll bypass the, the ice cream and everything else. Say, yeah, give me the green beans. Most people aren't like that. And sometimes the word of God is just green beans. Just things that you need that will nourish you and you don't get real excited about it. But then there are other times that it's like mean as salsa. Uh, it's got the jalapenos in it. It's hot and it sets your soul on fire and you are ready to jump up and run. Where you run, that's another question. But uh, The pastor teaches then the entire counsel of God's word. He never, I mean if he's doing it right, he never shuns the difficult unpopular parts because it is the word that holds the church together. It is the Word of God that that gets us within the will of God. And as I said in the prayer a moment ago, the Word is the will of God. So you must know God's Word. And to know it, you must hear it. You must be told. And that's my job, to tell you the Word of God. So maturity in the faith comes by hearing and obeying the Word. And this is the reason that the pastor shouldn't spend all of his time just preaching simple gospel messages. No, the goal is growth, and you're not going to grow on a steady diet of milk and things that you should have already learned. You're not going to grow if all I give you is tutti-frutti. You need to hear the doctrines of the Word of God. So this is what the pastor does. Then we also saw the pastor has the job of shepherding the church. That has some to do with the teaching aspect, but shepherding really has more to do with personal involvement with the membership. Sometimes on Sunday mornings before church, I I turn on the television, I watch watch a church program, I I listen to a large ministry that beams its programming around the world by satellite. I can't say that I agree with this church. Most of the time I just use it to get me angry, but I, I listen to it anyway. And this church has what they call media membership. This is for all those people that are out there listening on the radio or on the internet, watching on television. They have media membership. So you can join this church and you can become a media member. 
And these are people that will never set foot in the church. They'll never enter the door. They will never personally meet the people that are there. They have no relationship with the pastor. And I can tell you that in no sense is that a church. That is not what the Word of God speaks of when it talks of the church. That's not a New Testament model. And then you'll find in some of the mega churches around the country that they have satellite churches where they watch the pastor from a distant location on a video screen and they don't really have any, any relationship with the pastor of the church. He's not really their shepherd. Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan preacher, wrote a definitive book on pastoring. One of the things that he said I thought was very interesting, he said it's not good for a church to become so large that the pastor cannot personally know the people and be available to them. Even Paul agonized over churches that he had to leave. All that he could do is write letters. He wanted to be with them. But the Lord moved him to other places so he could start more churches. But you find the apostle, the heart of the apostle, in letters like 1 Thessalonians, where he longs for this personal contact with the people. He's distressed because he can't be with them. He's that type of shepherd. He wants to be among the people, and it's distressing to be apart from the people. So we see these functions of the pastor. He is the instructor. He is the shepherd. And he's also an administrator. That's the organizational ministry of the pastor in the church. So we can just say the pastor wears many hats. And Paul says that the church should esteem this labor that the pastor does among the people. Esteem that highly. Esteem him well. Now let's move on to the next aspect of leadership. Number two is to respect the authority of leadership. In verse 13, the leaders are to be highly esteemed. I've mentioned it. Esteem for the work's sake. Now let's just think about that for a few minutes. The pastor should be respected with cause. There is an efficient cause for the respect according to this text. Here it says to esteem him for the work's sake. His work is God's work. The pastor's work is sacred employment. In Philippians 2.16, Paul encouraged the church to hold forth the word of life, and I would submit that he encouraged them by his own example. He says, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. This was what Paul did. He held up the word of life. And this is what the pastor does in the church. He handles the Word of God. And this Word is the only power that can change people's lives. The Gospel is the Word of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that takes the, the lost out of the bondage of the kingdom of darkness and of sin and of Satan and translates that person into the kingdom of light, into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the power that justifies people. This is the power that sets them free from the condemnation of sin. And this is what will finally glorify them in the eternity of heaven. The word of life is the eternal word of life. And I don't believe that there's any work that is as essential, that is as worthy, that is as supremely useful as what the pastor does. His work is life-saving. Now, that's not to say there aren't many other important jobs. Some of you, maybe all of you, have important jobs that you do. It's important in your sphere. Bob repairs cars. 
He can make your car, your old car, run like new. And if it breaks down, you appreciate that expertise to get your car running again. Tabor works on cell towers. Uh, if you've been in an area where you constantly ask, can you hear me now? Well, Tabor's the guy you call because he can fix that for you. If you live by the cell phone, you live by your smartphone, then you need to call Tabor. Jason, I'm not sure what he does, but I know this. I maybe something to do with this. If, you're, if your blockchain is blocked, he's the guy that, that you need to call. But all of this is valuable work in its sphere, and, and of course we appreciate the talents of those who make our lives easier. There's nothing, wor nothing worse than a problem that can't be fixed. But I can tell you that the problem with your soul is the worst of all. And it's not just a problem for this life, it's a problem of eternal life. There is eternal misery in the everlasting fires of hell that is a result if something is not done to fix your soul. And so I would say that the person who gives the word of life and the one who can give you peace and joy in all of your tomorrows, I'd say that that person, the one who has the good news of Jesus Christ, has a job that supersedes all other work that can be done. This is the most, the most essential work. This is the most superlative work that can be done. It supersedes all other things. And so respect is due, not because of who I am, not because of what I have accomplished, but because it's the work of the one who sends me. And he sends on sacred employment. Now, this is the priority that Paul sets in front of the church. What is it that you count most valuable in your life? What is it that's most precious to you? And the thing that's most precious to you is the thing that you will esteem the most. Paul sets in order our priorities. Oh, you might ask, what are the priorities for people in the church? Well, I'm going to tell you that the priorities are God, family, and church. Does that sound right? Well, actually, it's not right. I think that's the wrong order. I think the order is God, church, and then family. Now, we're not going to argue, I don't think, that God is first. But I said church is next. Did that surprise you that I would say that? I say it is the church because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the highest expression of God on this earth. Family is third because who can testify that family might turn against you? Who can testify that family will sometimes get in the way of God's work? And I've seen many church members that will defend family to the detriment of the church when those things, those things come in conflict. Now I want you to understand that my comments here are about the righteous family. Because there's nobody else that's going to agree with this or try to fit in with it. The righteous family is happy to take third place. They don't mind being there because they know that faithfulness to the Lord and His work is always best for the family. And if you get the church out of the order here, the, the path is downward. It's a trek to misery and discontent. The family will not be right unless church life is right. And so that makes the church supersede family. Now, you might, you might say to me, what do you mean? I'm to neglect my family? That if uh, something happens in the family and it's time to go to church, that I just, well, I can't deal with you. I'm sorry. Just let my family go. That is not at all what I mean. Some of you might say, well, pastor, you know, you spend some time with your wife. Your wife is very sick and, and sometimes it has prevented you from being at church because you're in the hospital with your wife. 
Well, let me say this, that the church is built out of our families, isn't it? And as we look at family in the church, we understand that part of God's instructions to the family in the church is to, what? Husbands, love your wives. Cleave to your wife. She is, she is your, she is your, she's your mate. She's, she's your own body, the Word of God says. You don't desert your wife. And husbands, you, or wives, you don't desert your husband. The, the, the family is emblematic of God's church. So we keep our families together. So you understand, again, I'm talking about the righteous family. The righteous family are those who are working together in the Lord's church. And we're always putting God first, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is expression of Christ on earth. That is second, if you want to put it that way. Really, I think maybe it's a co-first. And then comes our family. So the work that I do from this pulpit, holding up the word of life, do you think that the pastor should be highly esteemed for the work's sake? I stand here not for myself. I stand here to hold up Christ. And if ever those two things get reversed, sit me down. Put another godly man or a godly man in my place. So esteeming the pastor for the work's sake is about how you respond in your relationship to the pastor. Now, there are two important verses in Hebrews that are critical for the church-pastor relationship. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now, verse number 7 is actually about leaders that you've had in the past. And hopefully they're good leaders. You remember the truths that they taught you. Pastors aren't all the same. Stylistically, we may be different. Sermon types and presentation may be different. Personalities may be different. But the word that we preach should never be different. And this is because the gospel that we preach is not the gospel of the preacher. This is the gospel of God. It is the word of God. Even though preachers may be very different from each other, we should never be different in the word. We always have the responsibility of being faithful to the doctrines of the word. Now, looking at verse number 17 in Hebrews, that's about current leadership. You are to obey and submit to leadership. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that there is a problem with this in this me-first age. It's hard to find people who don't think that authority is an outdated construct. Authority, though, and chains of authority are biblical. And the Word of God, God's Word teaches that these chains of authority are expected to be maintained. In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, Paul taught the chain of authority for believers. It begins with Christ, who is the head of the church. Then next, there is the husband who submits to the authority of Christ. And then it's the wife who submits to the authority of her husband. And then it's the children who submit to the authority of their parents. And then it goes to the principal outside the family of employees submitting to their employers. But this order has been thrown out. And you come right down to the very basic levels of this. If we go outside of the family and we look and see what's happened in the world today, the boss can't be the boss anymore. He can't because 
His employees come from messed up families where chains of authority are unrecognized. And so the boss has to consider feelings. The boss has to coddle and hope that somebody doesn't sue him because he hurts somebody's feelings. And then the boss is messed up too because he's a product of the same system that ruined his employees. And where does all that start? Well, it starts with the undermining of authority in the home. It filters into the relationships outside the home. It feeds up into the families that make up the church so that authority is the enemy. And when authority breaks down, it turns into a generational problem where there is no respect for it. Every child then is a rebel. And that feeds into the church so that respect for the pastor is hard to come by. And so I appreciate it when I find respect from our young people. Many parents have told me that their young people are afraid of me. They're terrified to go into the office to talk to me. It might be because of the bones of children that I keep in the office closet. But, you know, I appreciate that kind of fear and I, I appreciate the respect, though I don't want to maintain respect that way. But at least it tells me that parents are not saying to their children, you don't need to pay attention to the pastor. Now, we deal with respect here in the church. Respect is expected. And we see it when it comes time to make decisions in the church. It's hard to find consensus when the membership has everybody that has a different opinion. Each, each person thinks that their opinion is better than all others. Well, in our church, every member has a vote. The pastor has one vote. Every member has one vote. I believe that's the best form of church government. But I also believe that there's a difference between the functional, physical, plant issues of the church that we vote on and ministerial issues. The one vote of the pastor should be very carefully observed. It must be very strongly considered. In ministerial issues, the church should recognize the one man, one woman vote is not equal to the pastor's vote. In the ministry, the Word of God says the church is to submit. Now, regarding Hebrews 13, 17, then what is the relationship of the people to the leader? Now, I said, we've looked at what the leader does. Now, what do the people do towards the leader? What are you to do? Two important considerations are made. The first is the person to obey. Who do you obey? Well, in Ephesians 5 and 6 that I mentioned a moment ago, there's that list. It starts with the head who is Christ. It works its way down through family relationships and then into work relationships. Those are different spheres of authority and obedience. And when it comes to the church, the church is the most important place of authority, and thus it has the strictest requirements of obedience. Since the work that we do here is the most important work in the world, then the strongest considerations need to be given to whom uh, make sure that we are obedient. Now in the church, the pastor serves as the under-shepherd of Christ. Remember how we talked about that last time? How that pastor comes from the word shepherd, and it relates to Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. And so the pastor, the shepherd, is the under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. And he becomes the visible, uh, the visible contact of authority in the church. That's not my word. We've just read it. That's God's word. You see it in Hebrews 13. Now, the pastor's authority is not granted by the church. Do you understand? There is none of you that gives me my authority. 
Even though the church votes to put the pastor into the office, the pastor's authority for the work comes from none other than God. Only from God. Notice this proof in Acts 20, 28. Paul said, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The Holy Spirit made the pastor the overseer, the episcopy, the bishop. That's the one in charge, the one with authority. Then in Ephesians 4.11, it says that the Lord puts pastors in the church. 1 Peter 5 says it is the church is the flock of God and the pastor is the shepherd. Sheep don't have authority over shepherds, do they? So these are sufficient proofs, I think, of pastoral authority. There are three verses that I've just given you that refer to all three persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit puts pastors into ministry and gives them authority. So if I were you, I, w I would think not once, not twice, but I would think three times before I challenge pastoral authority. Three times, according to the Trinity, I would be very careful, and then still I would back off and seek wise counsel before I do. So clearly the scriptures teach that the pastor speaks for God. He may make mistakes, and he will, but if he's in the Word, he gets authority from the God of the Word. Now, if you'll look just a minute, you've you got your text there in 1 Thessalonians 5. You just turn over to the second chapter for just a moment. We've noted that verse number 13 in this chapter is the foundational verse of this letter. If this is not true, then there's nothing else in the letter that's of any value. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God which he heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. This is the way that you are to regard the preaching of the word. You must receive it as the word of God given by the Holy Spirit to the pastor. Now understand, in comparison to what I do and what Paul did, there is nothing that I preach that must be invented by me. There is nothing that I preach that is original to me, but it must be strictly in agreement with the word that's given to the apostle. Now, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.19, Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Against an elder. And again, do you remember last week, the elder, that's another word for pastor. And so that verse guards the pastor against unfounded allegations. So you must tread lightly when you speak of the pastor. And that's not about veneration. It's not about you bowing and kissing my ring. It's about, not about calling me reverend. It's not about calling me your holiness. The Bible doesn't demand that respect in those ways. I don't even want you to think that I have any access to God that you don't have. I don't want you to regard me as the mediator that you must have before you can speak to God. I'm subject to fears, I'm subject to temptations, I'm subject to sin just as you are. I need the Holy Spirit's protection just as you do. And so I don't ask for any of this or say any of it from pride or arrogance, but from the authority that's granted to pastors according to God's Word and specified in God's Word, just as we've read in Hebrews and 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Now further, Hebrews says, obey that rule. Obey those that rule. The pastor does not rule as a magistrate. I'm not, as Catholicism teaches, that I have authority to reward or punish you. I don't torture dissenters, even though sometimes I think it's probably a good idea. But I, I, I must rule biblically. And to rule biblically is to rule by love. The church obeys Christ, and why do we do it? We obey him because of love. He rules in love, and we love him because he first loved us. We willingly submit to Christ because of love. And so what I'm to do as your pastor is to model Christ and do the same, to rule in love. And I confess, sometimes that's hard for me. I'm not perfect as Christ is perfect, so I can get really ornery sometimes. But I hope that I can instill confidence in you by the knowledge of the word that you would be willing to be, to be led, to be ruled, and to love and to respect me because what I know ensures that I can administer without being undermined. What your love for me, your respect for me, and what I know about the Word of God, you have that confidence so that you don't go about undermining what I do as the pastor. But I will say it's still true that you must scrutinize every message. You need to very carefully weigh what you're being taught and judge it by the Word. And I hope you do. I invite you to. But until you have scriptural proof that I've taught you incorrectly, accept it as the Word of God. As Paul said, as it is in truth, the Word of God. Accept the teaching as valid because it's supported by the Word. And then I'll say that rule in the church is not to rule as a dictator. Now some, in some Baptist churches this happens. The Baptist pastor is a dictator in the church. Peter said we are not lords over the church. We are not slave drivers with exec executive privileges. And I don't want to be that kind of pastor. That breeds resentment, not godly respect. The pastor, according to the word of God, is a minister. And minister means servant. We labor among you. We labor with you. So respect us for the work's sake. Now the second aspect of respect in Hebrews 13 is the purpose of obedience. Why should you obey? I think you'll like this answer. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls, as that they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now here we have a double emphasis in the verse. It says, obey and submit. Why? Why do you do this? Why must you? Well, first, the word says, the pastor watches for your soul. This is good for you. This is good. If I preach against sin and I step on your toes, I'm not picking on you. I'm not being mean to you. You should never complain and ask, why are you always picking on me? Why don't you pick on somebody else? Well, if this was only a human thing, I can tell you, I'd rather not fool with you. I'd rather not have anything to do with this. I mean, why, why do I enjoy making your troubles mine? I don't. Humanly speaking, this is a bad job. You consider there's not a soul on earth that doesn't have troubles. Just as Job said, as sure as the sparks fly upward, we're all born to trouble. So you got trouble, I got trouble, all God's children got trouble. And, and it's a big problem. I got plenty of problems of my own. And, and if I wasn't a Christian, I'd never think of ever becoming a pastor of a church because I'm not crazy about dealing with people's problems. Oh... But this is not human work, is it? This is God's work. And so God changed my heart. 
to make me concerned about your best welfare. And I can't do my job properly unless I watch for your soul. God will not approve me unless I'm busy about correcting you. This is eternal work. It's a view towards an endless eternity and your position in the glories of heaven. So I want you to be right so that you can enjoy fellowship with God. I want you to receive rewards and commendations later so everything that I tell you affects your eternal soul. Now make no mistake, I preach against sin because sin brings chastisement. I preach against sin to produce godliness and holiness. I make demands because God makes demands. God said, be holy because I am holy. How could you ever be angry if I repeat what God said? Sin makes you miserable. Sin puts a knot in your stomach that you can't untie. God won't let you be happy in sin. He wants to bless you. And I want God to bless you. Proverbs says that a friend is not your friend unless he wounds you by telling you the truth. Paul expressed the same in Galatians 4.16. He said, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So when I preach against your sin, I watch for your soul. Now one more observation on this point. I don't preach out of selfish motives, but it's nevertheless true that when I preach against your sin, I save my own hide. God said... If I don't do this, if I don't warn you to turn from sin, he will require your soul at my hands. Now, I confess, I don't understand all the implications of that that statement, but I don't want to test it to find out if it's true. In Ezekiel, it says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Now finally, the pastor is responsible to watch for your soul, and you are responsible to the pastor. Calvin wrote, The heavier the burden they bear, the more honor they deserve. For the more labor they have undertaken for our sake, and the more difficulty and danger he incurs for us, the greater our obligation to him. Now, in Calvin's day, a pastor of a church was the most persecuted. Take down the leader, that's what they're always trying to do. In our day, we may not worry so much about that, but we do have this. I have taken the weight of your soul on me. I hazard my own relationship with God in the world for you, so what should you do for me? Well, the last part of Hebrews thirteen seventeen says you shouldn't give me grief. Don't make the ministry hard. Let me joy in the ministry because, he says, that will be profitable for you. In the end, how you help me helps you. It will be profitable for you. For they watch for your souls that they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Your responsibility is to obey and submit so I can do my job peacefully. And you'll experience peace as well, as he says there in verse number 13. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now, I do need to tell you this last point on your responsibility to the pastor. The word says to esteem the pastor highly in love for the work's sake. How, how, how would you go about obeying that command? How would you act that out? In what ways would you show it? Well, there is love and respect. I've shown you that part of it. But did you know the scriptures are also very specific about how you show your love for the pastor? 
that you do it in a concrete way. I'm not going to keep you long on this, but it's part of the Word of God, and we're talking about pastors in the church and how this thing works together. So we'll just cover it well, cover it here too, I should say. 1 Timothy 5.17 again, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the Word and doctrine. Nearly all commentators agree that this refers to the financial support of the pastor. I'm not a prosperity preacher, and so I don't want airplanes. I don't want mansions. Now there's this thing going around about, maybe you've seen it on the news, some of the pastors that are wearing $5,000 pairs of shoes. A preacher should never preach to gain wealth, but neither do the scriptures teach that a pastor should be poor. Commentators agree that the meaning of this verse is that pastors should be kept well by the church, that his support should be above a normal job because the work that he does is above a normal job. It's not demanded that pastors live below the people, but to live sufficiently well enough that the pastor never needs to concern himself with how he pays his bills and how he feeds his family. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says, The work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches, in the ministry of the word and prayer, and watching for their souls as they that must give an account to him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister, not only to give them all due respect, but also to provide them with all good things according to their ability, so as they may have a comfortable income without being themselves entangled in secular affairs, and may also be capable of exercising hospitality towards others. And this is required by the law of nature, and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. I find that quite remarkable considering the time of history that it was written, 1689. And remarkable is this conclusion with a note from the life of William Carey. William Carey is the Baptist pastor, Baptist missionary, known as the father of modern missions. In 1812, when Carey was ministering among the poor in Calcutta, India, he was visited by another great missionary, one whose name I hope you recognize, Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was on his way to Burma at that time, and he stopped into Calcutta, India to speak with Carey and uh, get some uh, insights from him. And Judson's wife, Harriet, commented on the place where William Carey lived. He lived in a stone house, and she said, It was so large that to my wondering eyes it looked like a palace. Now, the experience of Carey is remarkable because he labored among such poor people, and yet there were none that objected. Well, we're not looking for palaces. We're not looking to enrich ourselves in the ministry. But I'll say at the same time, there shouldn't be anyone who begrudges the support of the pastor. The Bible says if he labors well in word and doctrine, to esteem him highly for that work. And so I ask, what's that benefit for you? What do you get from it? Is your soul fed? Does it increase your joy in the eternities of heaven? How much is it worth to keep the pastor from secular concerns so that he can feed you the word of God? See, Paul knew the church wouldn't succeed if it didn't start here with its most important relationship. If the pastor is the one who represents Christ, 
If he handles the word of life, if he watches for your soul, esteem him highly because of the work. The work is blessed by it. The church is blessed by it. Now I'll tell you again, this is not exciting stuff. This is not like going out in the parking lot and shooting rockets. This is a different type of excitement. And I say it's a different type because if we are the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're okay with eating green beans. We're okay when the Word of God doesn't seem to be too exciting for us, but we recognize here is truth. Here's what the Word says. And if the Word says it, God's people need it. The church survives by God's providential hand. It survives when our relationships are built on godly submission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that although we may not say things that are so exciting and are somewhat mundane in ways, but it's all the word of God. It's all good for the church. It's all things that must be learned for us to function properly. Lord, I appreciate the privilege of being a pastor, the pastor of Berean Baptist Church and these good people who treat us so well. We're amazed at so many things the church does for us, the way the church loves us. And what I preach today is not to chastise anyone in this church for anything that's been done. But it's a way of saying, we're doing what the apostle says. We're obeying the word of God. And we know the church will be blessed by obeying God's word. Help us in these relationships. Next week we come back and we talk about fellowship between members of the church Lord, it's all your word. Help us to learn it. Help us to grow by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.